this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, Made Excellent for Marriage. All right, so what makes a man, or a woman, ready for marriage? Is it an age, an achievement, a simple off-handed decision, hey, I think I'm going to get married now? Or is it a manner of life that evidences the brilliance of a heavenly kingdom? Please, we'd love for you to contact us at www.lrc.com. Now here's Eric Ludy. Made excellent for marriage. When we're talking about marriage, there's two different marriages that are revealed in Scripture. One is an earthly marriage, the marriage that we typically default to when we see something like this. And there's another one that has to do with a covenant encounter and engagement with the living God. That we are actually, as the believing church, as the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ. We are entering into a communion and a relationship with the king of kings for all of eternity, and it is a marriage. So this has a double meaning. Uh, It is a preparing for that excellency of shared communion. If you allow your life to be prepared properly for an earthly spouse, did you know that by course and by natural uh, process, you are preparing in an intimate relationship and and ever-deepening relationship with the living God? You see, a lot of us, not a lot of us, there are some of us that might say, I'm not going to get married. Okay, that's not even in the cards for me. I'm not going to use that term in the cards anymore. That's a terrible term. It is not in my future. Uh, And yet, even if you were going to be single in this earthly life, I want you to realize that if you're a believer, you're preparing for marriage. And any effort that goes into allowing God to build and shape this life, this mind, this heart, into what it ought to be, isn't just valuable for earthly marriage, it's valuable for heavenly marriage. And so this is for every single one of us, no matter what our age is, because some of us may be married. And there's some of us that are going to wish we had heard this 40 years ago. This is, this is jewels from heaven. This is great stuff. Leslie and I have traveled the world for close to 17 years now, speaking on relationships. So, and I've never given this message, what I'm about to give you. Now, there's pieces of it that have come out. I have never, and Leslie and I were discussing this this week, I have never given a Sunday morning service on this topic. You know, I've mentioned marriage in a Sunday service, but I've never actually spoken on this topic on a Sunday. This is a very unique thing. So I've been around dealing with this topic you know, when God writes your love story, the book we're most known for is literally the second best-selling relationship book of all time, and I've never even given this message in a Sunday. Isn't this exciting? Can't you just feel the building up of, of this? Uh, I think this will be a fun message and a funny message. It's like a part two of last week's. So if you didn't like last week, you're definitely not going to like this week. Uh, if you did like last week, then this will be just, you know, really fun for you. Last week, it was called The Making of a Little Hero, which was a message dedicated unto Hudson, my six-year-old. Because for him to be prepared to travel on my international ventures and to be able to sit still, to be able to show respect to the dignitaries, whoever it is that we are encountering, you know, he needs to be a little hero. And so there's a 13-point test that I relayed to all of you. So first of all, we started by talking about heroism and honor, and then we ended up with a 13-point test. It was sort of like the knight's test, except for it's a lot easier. Uh, and, you know, we're not slaying dragons and, you know, doing, doing all sorts of 
heroic things in that regard. They're more simple heroism that is demonstrated in a household growing up, the way you treat a parent, the way you treat a sibling. And so that was a really fun message. Well, this is that message, but the wedding edition. Isn't that fun? This is like the wedding edition of that. So, and I think, I, I don't remember now, but I think it's a 16-point test for the ready, heroic lover, okay? So not just the little hero, this is the little, heroic lover, okay? <laughs> this is going to be fun. Uh, see, some of you were scared by what we were going to get into. Now you're like starting to relax. Well, we need to amp it up again. <clears throat> okay, first of all, let's start with the all-important attitude. Now, I'm going to apply these things specifically to marriage, and as I go through, however, their application is global in the Christian uh, world, okay? This, this, isn't, this is just one specific application. That's one of the funny things that happens with truth in our day and age is we have a tendency to isolate it to one application, and that is a relationship that we have with God, which isn't bad. It's perfectly fine to apply it that way. However, truth must integrate with every aspect of our life. It must deal with your finances. It must deal with your child raising. It must deal with your business and corporate ventures and work. It must deal with the forms of government and how we live in a society around us. It is a mentality that must integrate because it's truth. And if truth is removed from any culture or from any individual's life and their practice within their finances, within their home, whatever aspect of life, marriage, then there is a vacancy and there is an erosion that begins to naturally take place. You remove God out of society, and erosion takes place. You move God out of relationships, whether pre-marriage or marriage, and there is a vacancy, and I guarantee it's not a true absence of something. There's a presence of something. It's known as sin, or the principle of the flesh, or the old man, and it controls our sexuality, and it destroys and implodes the relationship. Some of you contestate to this. This is just the way it works. If, you, if God has been removed from your practice in the arena of relationships, the relationships stink. All right? How's that for a summary? They stink. They do not work. They disintegrate. You selfish, they selfish. It doesn't work. However, if you are built like Christ, if they are built like Christ, if you are selfless, they are selfless. You know what? Heaven on earth. And I'm not exaggerating. Okay, the all-important attitude. I'm going to give you a scripture out of Philippians, but you're going to notice I have taken the word others and replaced it with the word your future spouse. Now, I'm announcing that ahead of time. I'm not trying to alter scripture here. However, I'm sticking in your future spouse. Now, I'm doing this from a vantage point of speaking to someone like my son, who's six years old, and to students here. A lot of students here are single. We have a lot of single in this room. And I'm speaking to you, however, this is applicable for all of us. It's a simple principle. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem their future spouse better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of his future spouse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. What? What mind did he have in him? Who was he looking out for? When he had loneliness of mind, when he was going to even, obedience unto death, even death on the cross, who was he thinking about? Well, it was actually his future spouse, ironically. It was the bride of Christ. 
That's what he was doing it for. And so when we apply this specifically to this area, it gives us a template, it gives us a pattern for how we are to live. It actually makes sense. Every one of us that is married can just reflect upon this and just imagine rewinding our life to our single years and beginning to, with a lowliness of mind, instead of out of selfish ambition and conceit, with lowliness of mind, we serve and we wash the feet of our future spouse even before we meet them. And so we make decisions now in our single years that will honor them, that will love them, that will cherish them. There are things that we do now that either invest or that take away from that relationship. When you're married, that's obvious. There are things you do every day that either invest in that marriage or take from it. The same is true before you meet that person. If we take this season of our life before we meet our future spouse seriously, we can literally invest a massive pile of riches into that relationship before we ever even say hello for the first time. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Liberty leveraged lovingly. In 1 Corinthians, we, you know, Paul has an issue. The 1 Corinthian church is not doing that hot. Okay, we got all sorts of bizarre things happening. And you see, what is taking place. I'm going to build a little uh, case here. The first thing that's happened is the Corinthian church has discovered that they have liberty in Christ Jesus. Well, this is a truth. They have liberty in Christ Jesus. No longer do they need to be under the weight of just code and regulation and law. They have liberty in Christ Jesus. However, that liberty is now being used to say, you know what, I can do whatever I want to do. You know, one of the principles of early American history was liberty. So, but liberty is a freedom to do that which the law permits. Okay, in other words, you have a crowded movie house, and if someone comes in and says, you know, I have liberty to say anything I want, and so they come in and shout, fire! You know what? That is a violation of other people's liberties. In other words, I have liberty to swing my hand in the air like this, and someone could look at you and go, okay, you have liberty, sure. However, if someone's face is right here, I suddenly lose that liberty because I'm violating their liberty by pounding them in the face, okay? So in other words, yes, you have liberty, but it's not liberty to do whatever you want. God has set us free, get this, to do what he wants. You see, before this liberty came, we couldn't obey God. We couldn't do anything that pleased him. We have been set free from the power of the flesh, the power of the old man, the principle of sin, which has always controlled us. And for some of us in here, it still does. And that's the transaction of the gospel, which if you're interested in knowing about it, I would love to walk you through it. However, what happens in the transaction of the gospel is the old man is crucified with Christ. 2,000 years ago, that problem within you is dealt with. And there was a freedom that comes. But it's not a freedom just to do whatever we desire to do. Run into crowded movie houses and yell, fire. We are now given liberty to serve. To serve Jesus Christ. We are given liberty to love others. To do unto others as we would have them do unto us. You see, before we were all selfishness. We couldn't do those things. We could esteem them with our mind, but we couldn't perform them. Now we can perform them. 
So now you have the privilege of living this life correctly. Well, here's my advice. Do it correctly. Why would you just continue to live selfishly if you've been set free from having to be a selfish idiot? You can now be selfless. You can actually benefit the lives of others. And by benefiting the lives of others, do you know that you actually benefit yourself as well? In other words, you become stronger when you turn outward. That's the way God intended you to be. Liberty leveraged lovingly. This is, now it'd be a funny way to describe 1 Corinthians, but you know what? That's not a bad description of the book of 1 Corinthians. I wasn't thinking about that when I came up with the title. However, liberty was being leveraged selfishly and fleshly. In other words, these men were like, hey, I, I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm going to commit fornication. Well, Paul has to step in and say, hey, buddy, <laughs> that is completely opposite of what Jesus Christ sets you free to do. And people that had food sacrificed to idols, you know, and there was this whole debate about how people, say, hey, I have liberty. I can eat whatever I want. And Paul says, I have liberty too. However, if my expression of liberty causes someone else to stumble, I will give up my privilege to do something to make sure that I'm making someone stronger in the things that I choose to do. We are given liberty. However, we're supposed to leverage it with love. Remember what 1 Corinthians 13 says? Yeah, that's the old classic love chapter. Well, guess what? That's, in the, that's the like, buildup to what Paul is saying here. He's saying, okay, you guys have liberty, yes, but let's discuss how it's supposed to be used. And what is he building towards? Love. You want to know what love is? This is the kingpin. You can do all these things, but if you don't have love, if you're not leveraging this with love, it's all empty. It's not real. It's not substantial. This is the evidence of the Christian. Not just that they have liberty, but that they leverage their liberty lovingly. So let's go through 1 Corinthians. Now, this is just a portion of the argument that Paul uses. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to, you'll notice like 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 12 through 13. I'm going to just connect the dots. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul begins to answer questions that the Corinthian church has laid before him. And he's going through these questions. And so I'm going to just go through and you'll see a theme that Paul is building throughout 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. But when you sin so against the brother, your brother, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So yes, you can talk about your freedom. But buddy, if what you're doing is creating a stumbling block for other people, did you know that you are sinning? And not just sinning against your brother, you're sinning against Christ. Woo, that's a big statement. In other words, let's be watchful of how we're wielding this notion of liberty. Wherefore, if meat or food, let's say this is meat sacrificed to idols, that's the concept here. If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no meat while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. I have no interest in offending my brother. And I'm not just going to say, hey, you with your weak conscience, you know, they're all sensitive. <laughs> that was sacrificed to idols. It's just like, hey, 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 idols are sticks and stones. They're not even real. Why does it matter? You may be free from this. You may not care. However, if by you eating it, it would create a stumble for them. And they're like, well, maybe I should eat it too. But they're afraid that the idol is, really has power over them. Do you know that you're actually causing them to be stumbled in the process? And Paul says, I will eat no flesh while the world stands. 
I will give it up completely if I knew that it caused someone to stumble. I may have the liberty to do it in Jesus Christ. However, I will give up my right to do it to serve you. See, all of you out here are more important than me. This is a principle, and I'm, I'm building a case for marriage. When we say, hey, I have the freedom to do this, and as a result, we hurt the people around us because we're indulging ourselves. I can do that. I don't see anything in the Bible that says I can't do this, and as a result, we slight someone else. It's like, hey, I can have my hand ball up into a fist and hit you in the nose if I want. You take that attitude into marriage, and guess what? You'll, first of all, turn your spouse into a bloody pulp, and there'll be no health, there'll be no beauty, there'll be no life in that marriage. However, if you take this attitude, if there was anything, if this hand keeps balling up into a fist and hurting my spouse, I would rather have it removed from my body than hinder you. I would rather lose my right arm than hurt those around me. I will limit my freedoms to serve that I would not offend those around me. So let's keep going through this argument. 1 Corinthians 9, 1, 19 through 22. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? He's appealing, he's saying, hey guys, your argument is that you're free. Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law is under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law is without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became as I as weak, that I might gain the weak, that I have made all things to all men. Why? That I might by all means save some. What are we here for? Our own self-gratification? Are we here to make ourselves feel better? We're here for Jesus. Don't you realize who he is? Don't you realize who God is, what his agenda is? Your life is not your own. It was bought with a price. Christianity is turning it over to God, saying, God, you use it as you see fit. He sets us free. He sets us free from the controlling power of sin, those addictive processes and cyclical patterns in our life that keep putting us under the tire and having us rolled under the truck. It's a miserable existence like that, and guess what? You're set free from it. But not free to go and live for the flesh again. You're set free to now do what God would commission you to do, and for the first time in your life, you can now do it. You become a servant to all. Your future marriage, it's not about you. It's like, hey, you know what? I'm not gonna wait and be all pure for my future spouse. I bet my spouse isn't being pure for me. You become a servant unto all men, and that starts with your future spouse. You serve them even if they're not serving you. Your conditions aren't as long as you do it right. Could you imagine God saying that to us? You live perfectly, and then I'll come down and die for you. We're his bride, and guess what we did? We lived selfishly. And who came? He came and died for us without condition of our perfection. That's an extraordinary thing, an extraordinary statement. We live as Christ would live, whether or not anyone around us lives worthy of such love. We don't do it based on any condition. We do it because Christ first loved us. 1 Corinthians 10. But if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it. 
And for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thy own. In other words, your conscience would probably be fine with it. You're not concerned with the fact that it's sacrificed to idols. Who cares? You know, that idol is fake and, you know, fraudulent. It's nothing. However, for their sake, you don't eat it. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offense. You'll see this theme throughout Corinthians. Hey, don't cause others to stumble. This is about them. You are living outward. You are living to help them gain Jesus. You are living to, uh, to help them clearly behold the living God in your behavior. Neither to the Jew nor to the Gentiles nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Okay, this is just a principle. This is the argument that Paul is laying, and then, of course, it builds to 1 Corinthians 13. The all-important ingredient. Love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Well, could you imagine planting that in marriage? We all know the scripture, but I'm saying practically. This is actually supposed to be the behavior of the saints of God. This is the evidence that God has changed us. You will know my disciples by their love. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So, without going on an an exhaustive exegesis of 1 Corinthians, we just did a little survey, very quickly, to lay a foundation of what the Corinthian church was dealing with. They were living for self. Hey, we want God on our terms. Yeah, we love the fact that we're set free, but we want to live our own lives. You know, Christianity doesn't work that way. You want to have a great marriage? (laughs) Don't live that way then. You can't live selfishly saying, this is what I demand. This is what I want. A close, intimate relationship in marriage only works when you think about the needs of the other person. As if you will never receive anything in return. And when you serve the other person, there's a reciprocation that takes place. We give not to get back. We give because Christ gave to us. And we, as we have freely received, we freely give to our future spouse, to our spouse. It's an incredible model. And it works. It'll turn the world upside down. And it will start by turning your world upside down. Heroism. So this is from last week. And I'm going to build the same thing. Because remember I said I'm preparing you for the little heroic lover model okay so heroism the more mature and strong you become positionally in the kingdom of god the lower a place socially you understand yourself to have that those weaker than you have a claim on your strength as you mature in the kingdom of heaven you take a lower position in this world not because you are worthless in this world it's because you know your value in heaven and you are following your king's pattern He took the lowest place. You cannot take a lower place than Jesus took. You can't. He took the lowest place. And as you mature and you become more like him, and more of him is grown within you and is evidencing itself within you, you take a lower place. The most mature member of a family, we like to think it should be the husband, should take the lowest place in his family. 
is willing to die that his family might live. He is willing to suffer loss that his family would find gain. That's the way we handle life. In this environment, I seek to take the lowest position. All of you have a claim on my strength. If I know something that would help you and give you understanding, I want to give it. If I have resources that would help you, I want to be able to provide them. I want to come under and serve you. And we as the body of Christ, we take the lowest position in the culture. In other words, this world around us, this little community of Windsor around us is more important than us. And we will allow them even to mistreat us that we might serve them. And even if we die in the process, see them find life. That's the work of a hero. Honor. So what we're going to do is we're going to blend two things together. This is what we teach at Ellerslie. Honor, and I said this last week, is a secondary effect. You do not start with honor training in the church of Jesus Christ. You start with gospel. Because people have to discover Jesus Christ. They have to enter into Christ so that Christ can enter into them. And then Christ can begin to change their life and their behavior. And that change of life and behavior is honor. It is the behavior of heaven come to earth. The way that people and angelic beings behave in heaven is the way that we are supposed to behave here as Christians. We are revelations of kingdom behavior. Actually, of the behavior of Christ. Specifically, the king's behavior. Not just kingdom behavior, but the king's behavior. So honor is the evidence of you being in Christ and Christ being in you. And this will change every aspect of your life. It'll change your conversation. It'll change what you look at with your eyes. It'll change how you handle this hand. If it's been balling up into a fist in the past, you know, God has a, an intention for this hand. And it's not to, you know, be clobbering people in the face. He wants you to take it, bend down, dip it into a, a, a bucket full of water that has a, you know, a towel in it. Well, actually, the towel would probably be separate. Wash some feet and dry them with this hand. I don't know. I actually got the towel wet in that process. We need a new towel. Uh, but there is a purpose for it. And it is not to harm, it's to help. It's not to hinder, it's to protect. Everything we have has a purpose. Every member of our body, our eyes, our mouth, our heart, our hands, our feet, our ears, our minds, every aspect of us has a heroic purpose. A purpose that is meant to serve and to help and to preserve and to protect and not to harm and harass and demean. And most of us only know how to use our bodies for selfish endeavors. We don't know what it means to have it used for Jesus Christ. And that's what honor is. And so what we're going to build here is a picture of how honor and heroism is cultivated in our lives before we get married. Now, what you're going to see is you're going to see the male pronoun in this. Because when I'm doing this, I'm preparing it for Hudson. So that's, that's who my sort of study is, my muse, as I'm going through this, to be able to ponder how I pass this off to Hudson. You going to be listening, buddy, uh, as I go through this? Yeah. He was making his bed uh, this last week. He was really cute because that was one of the things. In fact, Daddy got so excited about that that I included a few of the things from last week in here just as reinforcement. Uh, so if you missed last week, you're going to get a few gems from last week too because they overlap. There were multiple things that I took out. This is a new list. Even though the first two things on the list will be very similar. This is a new list. And it's not that you know, the other things from last week don't affect marriage. They do in a big way. However, this is a focused 
specific preparation of how to love someone else well. And there are things that we can do now in our single years so that we can love someone else well in the future. And there's some of us now that need to learn better how to love someone else well now. And by the way, every single thing on this list would affect every relationship in your life. Your roommates uh, here at Ellerslie would be dramatically affected. Your brothers and sisters, your relationship with your parents, all of it would be turned on its head because Jesus Christ would be allowed to speak his language of love in and through your behavior. Christianity is very practical. We oftentimes don't want it to be practical. We want it to be theoretical. So then we esteem it from a distance, but it never has to come in and change our lives. Well, if it doesn't change your life, you aren't a Christian. Christianity must meet the human body where it's at and change its management. Remove the old management and bring in new management. It has to be a transaction in this earthen realm. It's not just in a theoretical heavenly realm, somewhere out there, someday. This is very real stuff now. A little heroic lover. Uh, let me give you the definition. One built after the pattern of the big heroic lover, Jesus Christ. That's, you know, it's a little strange to call Jesus the big heroic lover. That's what he was. He was the bridegroom who gave up his life for his bride. He did it right. He set the pattern. This is not just an accidental link that we're making. It's like, well, you know, we're trying to stretch things to say that, you know, Jesus was a bridegroom and we're a bride. And so we're supposed to take that pattern and apply it to ourselves. No, that's exactly what we're supposed to apply as the pattern for ourselves. The, the reason that we give in, uh, give in marriage and... I was going to say give and take in marriage. I don't know if take is the right term for that. But give ourselves in marriage and leave father and mother is as an earthly representation of a heavenly pattern. It's actually born in heaven, derived in heaven, created, inspired in heaven, and then we demonstrate it down here as a picture of heaven. Okay, a perfect spouse in the making, a pint-sized intercessor. Remember last week there was a pint-sized intercessor? Still have it. A little heroic lover, pint-sized intercessor, by the way, is one who stands in the gap and takes the hit so that someone else would not have to take that hit. That's what an intercessor is. It's a gap filler. One who's made strong so they can protect that which is weaker. You want a great strength for marriage? Become a pint-sized intercessor. Jesus is a mega-sized intercessor. He stood in the gap for the sin of the world. Okay? That's pretty big. A little heroic lover must prove to be always honorable, loving, responsive to need, pure of heart, protecting, brave, courageous, quick to forgive, truth-telling, respectful, generous, thoughtful, kind, self-controlled, clean, orderly, alert, and of course, happy and enthusiastic. Now last week there were a few parents that got pretty excited about that list. They're like, yes, that's, this is when the elbow comes out and wakes up the kid. You know, next to them, oh, no, you listen to this. Uh, and this is good stuff. Every single one of us needs to listen to this. This is what it looks like. This is the picture of heaven come to earth. The little heroic lover test. 16 proving points of the ready lover. Number one. This is the same number one from last week. The first two are going to be very similar. And then we're going to build. Always demonstrate honor. A little heroic lover always exhibits the behavior of heaven. He does nothing disgusting or rude. 
He does nothing disorderly or diminishing to others. He always edifies his friends and family. And he is always watchful not to speak or dress or live or behave in a disrespectful way that would make others feel awkward. He will always give up his own liberty to ensure that someone else around him is made stronger. That's just the way it works. That's how a little hero works. That's how a little heroic lover works. In other words, the same thing that trains you to be an excellent giver of the gospel in this world is the same thing that makes you excellent in marriage. You always show honor. See, in America, we aren't trained this way. We are trained to be disgusting. And though our rudeness, we're not trained to be rude. We are rude just because we are not trained how to be outward in our focus and our thinking. And so we're like, hey, I have the right to do this. And we do that. We prove it all the time. When we're in public places that people can't see our face, driving down the road, we'll be extremely rude, we'll be arrogant, we'll be disrespectful. Why? No one can see me anyways. And as a result, our curbing of rudeness in our culture is merely for social reasons. It's not for spiritual reasons. We haven't been saved from our rudeness. We must be saved from our discourtesy. It's not supposed to be a part of us. We're supposed to be outward, gentle, and generous to those around us to say, how can I be of service? How can I help you? Not because we were trained to be that way at Macy's department store, but we were trained that way by the king of heaven. And we don't do it for a paycheck. We do it to give glory to Jesus Christ. Okay, number two. I wanted to keep this one in. And I wanted to keep that that pressure on little Hudson in this point. Live a clean and orderly life. There's going to be some in this list that are very funny, by the way. You're going to really enjoy them. And be very uncomfortable for you at the same time. A little heroic lover keeps things in order. He keeps things clean and tidy, whether it's his room, his desk, or his body. And by doing this, he's demonstrating the fact that his God does all things decently and in order. Our God is a God of cleanliness, light, order, and purity. And his little heroic lovers must reflect this quality. And in doing so, we lay a foundation for a clean and orderly future with our spouse. First, a clean and orderly room and desk. A little heroic lover has a practice ground with his own personal space. His bed, for instance, should always be kept neat. And if it gets ruffled in the night, then first thing in the morning, it should be groomed with great attention to detail. Not one wrinkle. Sheets, blankets, and comforters evenly distributed over the bed and crisply presented to anyone who might have occasion to see it during the day. And if at all possible, to avoid the buildup of dirt upon the sheets, a little heroic lover is watchful to ensure that his sheets are washed and freshened weekly. Now, I gave that same line last week. Uh, I'm not going to embarrass you by asking you how many of you washed your sheets this week. But yes, the gospel can get very practical. And I want you to know, there are a few women in here that are very happy that this is coming out and now being associated with marriage. Please, learn to clean yourself up, buddy. Uh, You know, it's just a good idea. A little heroic lover must determine a place for everything. Clean clothes, dirty clothes, toys, books, pencils, pens, etc. Oh, extra change, etc. And once he determines the place for these things, then he must make sure that these things, though they be used during the day, are always immediately put back into their proper place after use. This will help to ensure a tidy environment and thus lay a healthy foundation for a tidy marriage and a tidy family. Order! Cleanliness! It's actually... A pattern of heaven brought to earth. And I said this last week, when you're walking into the Holy of Holies, there's not just like a pair of dirty underwear laying on the floor. It's, and isn't that funny? That seems completely disrespectful to even say it. That's because it's not the way it works in heaven. 
So when you try and justify your messy existence under the banner of your personality, it's actually an issue of selfishness. You want things on your terms, not God's terms. When you have a tidy, clean, and decently ordered life, you know that it shows respect to other people around you? You know when people have to come into your house or come into your car or come into your dorm room and step over things and endure smells that assault the senses, you know that that is a show of disrespect to those around you. Yes, I realize there are situations in the course of life where things get on the floor. I'm not talking about that. Yes, my, my, my uh, house gets dirty, then it gets clean. It gets dirty, and then it gets clean. But the principle is, if it gets dirty, it gets clean. As a matter of course, it doesn't get dirty, and then get dirtier. Oh, and then get a little dirtier, and then, then a little dirtier, and then panic sets in because the, you know, people are coming over. Oh, no, we need to clean this thing up. As a matter of principle, if you begin to train your life now, to live with order and cleanliness, did you know that you bring a great gift into marriage? I'm, this is what it's talking about. I know some of you are being convicted just at the basic level of life, or some of you are mad at me at the basic level of life, trying to think of a scripture to refute it. <laughs> but the point being that this is a gift for your future spouse. Okay, now I'm using the pronoun he in these things. And as a, as a matter of point, and I'm not saying girls can't be very messy. They can, okay? But men oftentimes are even worse in this territory. And when they come into marriage, they strew things around because they never learned how to find a place for it and keep it in that place. And this is a way of showing respect. So you want to show respect to your future spouse? Start showing them respect with your patterns now. That if they were to be in your room, that they would see something that they would want to marry. Just by looking at your room. That's an interesting test. If they could see your room and go, I'd like to marry this guy. Huh. I like this. This is a good one. I should have put that up in there. Okay, the second part of this is a clean and orderly body. A little heroic lover keeps his body in order, healthy, clean, and fresh smelling. He learns to make sure his mouth is always kept fresh with frequent toothbrushings and periodic mouthwash. He wears deodorant in order that his personal smell not overpower any given environment. He bathes daily, or as frequent as possible, in order to maintain a cleanness to his body and a freshness to his bearing. Now, this is just practical. It's a way of showing love to those around you. You know that having a personal stench does not show respect to those around you? I know it seems a little too blunt, but I'm not pointing at someone in here and saying, you're a personal stench. I'm saying, in general, when we do not care for our body, we actually show disrespect to those around us. And I want you to realize that as you move forward in a relationship, this can become a very significant issue. And your spouse in the future will be very glad that Eric spoke bluntly with you so that they aren't forced to say, could you take a bath? <laughs> he grooms his hair to make sure that it not prove a distraction, but only an enhancement to his life conversation. And he dresses in clothing that is appropriate for the situation, clean and pressed, in order that his bearing might be respectful to those he encounters in his journeys. And thusly, a little heroic lover is already learning how to love and show respect to his future spouse. Because a future spouse will undoubtedly find great satisfaction in this pattern of behavior. Beware, the little heroic lover will surely be overwhelmed in his marriage with a multitude of hugs, kisses, and cuddles, from his spouse of course, as a result of such attention to detail. I just want to forewarn you that if you do this well, there will not be that reason for your spouse to find an excuse when you move in for the hug. 
Uh, excuse me, honey, I, I just, I feel like I need to get something done. You know, if you're bearing that smell, it can be very difficult to, what is it, hug, kiss, and cuddle. Okay, these are very practical things. Now, you need to realize I'm writing this for my six-year-old. Some of you still need to hear it. <laughs> Sleep with respect. Now, most of us have our own bed. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that some of you in here, now, some of you are married, but some of you in here that are single, maybe you have like some queen-size bed and there's a sibling in there. I have no idea how your house is set up, okay? But typically, we have our own bed, okay? Uh, now, this is very critical. This is going to seem very odd at first, but this is very critical. Uh, I had someone here at Ellerslie who found out about my notes beforehand and skimmed them and, and saw this one, and they saw it yesterday. And then late in the middle of the night, uh, they found their head at the bottom of their bed, their cell phone under their stomach, and what was the other thing that was really funny? Uh, well, what was it? Oh, and the lamp was on. Oh, thanks, Ben. I was trying to protect your identity. Uh, and so I said, well, this is perfect. You know, it's just like set up for conviction right here. Okay, listen to this. This is great. A little heroic lover realizes that his bed may one day be shared with someone else. Someone a bit more delicate than he. Someone that he preferably not kick, elbow, and rudely toss out onto the floor in the middle of the night. Therefore, the little heroic lover must learn how to sleep with calm and order. He must learn to sleep in a manner that honors others. This is totally profound. I realize that. If he snores, he ought to seek a bodily position which would not encourage snoring. If he hogs covers by excessive rolling, he ought to train himself how to sleep still in one position and only turn slightly, and without great drama, during the night. A little heroic lover must be a respectful sleeper. Okay, now I want you to realize there's a few married couples in here that are like elbowing on this one. Because we have not been trained in our younger years to say, you know what, it matters. The little things matter. You are affecting others by disregarding certain things. And some of us, we just have never been told, okay? It's not to feel bad about it. It's to say, let's get it right. Let's realize that we, our goal in sleeping, if we're sharing a bed with someone, is to say, how can I help them get a good night's sleep? If you are awake, and I, I've, we've, Leslie and I have had this many times, you know, where someone's just awake, awkward, uncomfortable, and then they're squirming around, keeps the other person awake. You know the best thing to do if you're that person that's keeping the other person awake? Go into the other room. Let them sleep. It's an issue of respect. The same thing with sleeping patterns, okay? Now, if both of you snore and you, like, have a rhythm to it, and it's, it's like a symphony, and that's just part of how God, you know, maybe it's great, Okay? But as a matter of principle, when you get married with someone and that snore is keeping them awake, it can be very challenging to change patterns like this. And some of you are panicking right now, going, I can't believe this. You know, what kind of list is this? Well, hopefully you have a little lead time right now, and there are things that you can do. I snore if I'm on my back, okay? Now, that's never actually been proven to me, and I still don't know if I believe it. Uh, my brother, who is a classic snorer, uh, I used to always make fun of him because he snored. And then one day in missionary school, he came up to me, and I was on my back. And that was packed into one of these five bunk systems, you know, where I had a piece of plywood right over my head like this. I was like on the third bunk. And he came up, he's like, Eric, Eric. I go, what, 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 what? And he goes, you're snoring. <laughs> I, go, I wasn't snoring, I was, I was thinking. <laughs> I was, Okay. Don't let my brother tell you otherwise. 
Number four, eliminate the gross habits. We have a little short list here. Picking nose, burping, scratching, making unseemly noises, popping knuckles, not lifting the toilet seat. A little too practical for church, isn't it? If I don't say it, who's going to tell you? You're going to say it, my mom. You're right, but you may not listen to your mom. I want you to hear this. We have allowed the gross behavior in our culture, and it's part of the humor in our culture. And I want you to realize, it is not that funny in heaven. God made us as creatures with odd things that can happen, okay? But there is a manner in which we are to utilize these bodies that shows respect to other people. And the fact that we have digestive systems, the fact that noises may come out in different ways does not mean that we show no restraint to our body. Our job is to show restraint. You don't just say whatever word comes into your head, at least you shouldn't. Dangers of the untamed tongue, that's a message from a few weeks ago, you might want to listen to it. You do not just speak out whatever comes into your head and you also do not let out anything that stirs in your body. You show restraint, you show behavioral decorum and honor to those around you. You do not make other people feel uncomfortable. Okay, now I have unfortunately way too many stories of this, but because we're in church, I'm going to skip over it. This may be obvious to many, but unfortunately there are those in this audience that must have this spelled out. A little heroic lover must prove noble and respectful in the manner in which he handles his body. And this means that all gross, unseemly, or disrespectful habits must be eliminated. If the nose needs attention, avoid using a probing, picking finger. But rather show decency by utilizing a Kleenex to assist with the operation, and this in privacy, if at all possible. Very practical. Control all bodily noises. Harness the body to love and respect those around you at all times. Thusly, burping, cracking knuckles, smacking your mouth while eating, and other foul noises inappropriate to mention herein should be all be eliminated from the behavior patterns of the little heroic lover. Oh, and by the way, a little heroic lover handles the toilet matters greatly. That's a funny word. Uh, <laughs> with great dexterity? Maybe that would be a better... It must always be left clean with seat down. Now, I'm talking to a guy here, okay? Let's imagine that I'm talking to Hudson. You know what? There's a way in which a boy needs to treat that crazy part of the house, and it is with respect to the person that comes in after him, always, okay? For whatever reason, this takes a little bit of training. It doesn't come naturally. We don't come to this as a natural conclusion. But we are not animals. We are representatives of the kingdom of heaven, and when you use that part of the house, you leave it clean and respectful for the person that follows. And for the sake of the softer sex, it can often be appropriate to leave it with the lid down as well, so as not to expose any passers through with any unnecessary glimpses of toilet water. I do know women that are disgusted with the notion of toilet water. And so as a man, it's not just the seat, but I would also encourage the lid. You know what? I think it's reasonable, okay? Not that I can give you a chapter and a verse for that one. Number five, cultivate the manners of heaven. 
A little heroic lover must not just eliminate the gross, unseemly, and disrespectful habits, but he must also cultivate manners that demonstrate thoughtfulness, love, and respect. For instance, appropriately saying thank you after something generous is done for you, looking people in the eye when they talk with you, and giving them undivided, focused attention, eating the food that is set before you without complaint, but with gladness no matter what manner of food it is, showing proper table manners, and when done, always seeking ways to help clean up both your own plate and the plates of everyone around you. Opening the door for girls, talking with respectful and quieter volume in a public place, and always showing deference to the elders among you. For a little heroic lover to be properly prepared to honor his spouse in marriage, these heavenly manners are of great importance. Number six, demonstrate a disciplined manner. And I have a little, you know, cheat sheet for us here. Not overeating, not oversleeping, not trifling with petty things, but utilizing every moment for the glory of Jesus Christ. A little heroic lover is not ruled by the flesh, but is ruled by the spirit. And he demonstrates this by his daily schedule and the attentiveness he gives to the important things and the disregard he gives to the enticement of the overs. You guys know what overs are? I'm about to give you a short list of overs. Overeating, oversleeping, overplaying, overspending, overresting, overtalking, overreading, overmeditating on things that are not center, and overspending on things that are not essential. A little heroic lover must allow the Spirit of God to discipline his manner and well-balance him according to the value system of the kingdom. And the overs are not the behavior of heaven. We all know it, but sometimes we just need a sharp voice to just say it. These things are not the way we're to live. I know everyone around us in America does the overs. We live in an overindulgent culture. However, we are Christians. And we demonstrate the behavior of heaven. We are purchased by the blood of Jesus to demonstrate the behavior of Jesus, to show love and respect. And how we handle our time is one of those issues. If you are an overindulger and you get married, I want you to realize that is the greatest slap in the face to your spouse. You will take their money and spend it. You will take the time you would spend with them and you'll spend it on a football game. You'll take that and spend it somewhere else. Instead of being able to properly serve and love the one that you've entered into covenant with. However, if you learn how to put the overs out and allow God to train you and cultivate your time in the way you spend every item you have in your existence from time to money, you will be prepared to spend properly on the one you love. And they will have your undivided attention. You will be available, and those resources will be available to be able to serve what God is doing in your home. Number seven, handle money like Jesus. Here's Leslie's in my little statement down here that we uh, attempt to abide by. Splurge on the sacred things, skimp on the secular things, and starve the profane things. There are things that we radically give to. We were talking about this amongst the guys. We talked about finances on uh, our guy time on Thursday. And one of the issues I said is, you know, because we like, what's the sacred thing? Well, one of the illustrations we use for sacred things, you know, these things that we splurge on. We might not even have the money in our account, and we're like, I'll pay for it. And you're, the whole while you're going, I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. God obviously will have to because this is on his heart. And so we were talking about adoptions. That child is there and they need help, and you step up and say, I'll help. Well, it's going to cost you 20-some thousand dollars, buddy. That's okay. Do you have the money? No, I'll get it. That's called splurging on the sacred. It seems like an idiotic thing to do in this world. 
However, it's God's agenda, and even if we don't have the resources, he does. And as we follow him, he will supply. However, we also show reasonable restraint in our normal life. We skimp on the secular things. And the you know, classic illustration for that is a car. A car is one of those things that has a status value in our culture. And we want to be seen in a car that makes us look, you know, like we have status. And God says, you know what? This isn't where you put your money. You put your money in my kingdom, not on your ego. Ah, that's a hard one. We skimp on the secular. Now, defining the that would be a whole message in and of itself. Maybe we need to prepare that one in the future. And starve the profane things. Anything that is opposite the kingdom. Anything that erodes the kingdom's value system. Anything that hinders your own soul development, the soul development of your family around you. Starve it. You don't feed it even a crumb. Okay, so this is handling money like Jesus. A little heroic lover is serious about not letting money get the better of him or his future marriage. He must not be controlled by money, led by the need for money, or overly fascinated with the idea of getting more money. If money gets out of its proper and necessary context, then the little heroic lover is no longer a little heroic lover, but a little, or rather, a little anxious varmint. Money must not be treated as the enemy, but it also must not be treated as the solution to life's problems. Jesus is the solution, and always the solution. More of Jesus is what causes life to work, and not just more money. However, money plays an important role in the success of a little heroic lover, because, in a certain way, money is necessary to the function of life on earth. We all need it, but we don't need to be controlled by our need for it. And we all have it, but money does not need to have us. The way in which a little heroic lover learns to handle it will define in a large degree the atmosphere of his future marriage and family. So the budding little heroic lover must learn how to utilize money properly. And the basic rule of thumb is seek the priority of Christ first in your life, receive your assignment from him, and let God back you up with the necessary resources to pull off the assignment. Then when you have your resources, splurge on the things that are sacred, that express his kingdom, that build up lives, and that showcase gospel love. Skimp on the things that are secular. In other words, things that are ne not necessary, or I'm sorry, that are necessary, like cars, but do not, have, do not represent the kingdom priority. And then starve the things that are profane and spend not one dime on anything that is polluted, perverted, or contrary to the purposes of our king here on earth. Number eight, live with two eyeballs watching. Now, those of you that have ever heard me teach, uh, Leslie and I teach on relationships will know what this means. For those of you that haven't, this is really bizarre. When I was in college, God began to train me in something that I call the two-eyeball principle. Leslie doesn't prefer the title, two-eyeball principle. She's appealed to me many times, could you just call it the two-eye principle? Why do we say eyeball principle? I said, that's because, well, and I'll explain why, but uh, I began to live as if my wife could see me. And she was following me around everywhere I went. And so my question was, is the, the decisions I'm making, the attitude I'm living in, in my behavior with the opposite sex, is it honoring her? Would she feel cherished, honored, and loved if she could see me interacting with this girl? Would she feel jealous, hurt, and distracted, and unloved if she saw me flirting, tickling, moving in for the kiss? Someone that wasn't her. Think about it. And so I had two eyeballs floating. I mean, if they're floating in the air... And they don't have a body with them. They're eyeballs, right? And so eyes need sockets to be stuck in. And so that's why it's the two eyeball principle. So live with two eyeballs watching you. If Leslie was doing the notes, she would have said live with two eyes watching you. But eyeballs, you know, has a little cachet value. You're more likely to remember it, okay? 
A little heroic lover realizes that their every moment, every decision, every glance, every word, and every encounter matters to Jesus. But they also realize that it matters to their future spouse. So as a result, they live as if their future spouse can see them. Everything they do is being watched and witnessed by one who cares deeply. The little heroic lover knows how to ask the question, would my future spouse feel loved right now? Would this conversation make them feel awkward, jealous, or hurt? How can I love them, show them honor, and do kindness unto them even now? The little heroic lover is motivated to do their future spouse good and not harm all the days of their life, starting right now. I tell you what, this will change your future marriage if you're single. And by the way, this will change your marriage if you're married. Because everything you do, everything you look at, every encounter, every engagement you enter into, even if your spouse isn't there, you live as if they are. And guess what? If your behavior has to alter because of that, something was wrong with your behavior. This is merely a checks and a balance system for how we live. Because if we live to truly love and honor, then we're thinking about other people when we do. We should, also, we should first start by thinking about Jesus Christ. How would he feel? However, if you stick your future spouse into the equation, you know that it alters everything you do. It really does. This is what happened to me in college. It was a complete life change for me. My desire in college was that every girl that you know, I was friends with in college could come to my future wedding and be able to come up to my wife and say, Eric has always only had eyes for you. Can we live in such a way that the testimony of those around us that know us really well would be such a statement? They have always only had eyes for their future spouse. They're taken. They're living with a ring on their finger even though they haven't even met the person yet. They're not in the open market. They're living respecting one. They're living for one. They're not playing the field. One of the things that Leslie said this last week to the students was, so say you know who you're going to marry. And then it's like, well, their eyes are right here. Now I don't need to worry about that. Well, first of all, you have Jesus' eyes still. But secondly, this is a great test. You stick the girl's dad, his eyeballs floating around, and guess what? It alters your behavior. If that dad would not feel comfortable, you shouldn't be doing it prior to marriage, Okay. It's a matter of just simple honor and decorum and respect. That girl, when you're building that pre-marriage relationship, does not belong to you. Number nine, treat parents and siblings like royalty. Some of the parents in here are like, I, you know, I really like this one. This one really stands out to me. Treat parents and siblings like royalty. How do we typically treat parents and siblings? Uh, they get our worst. Isn't that a funny thought? We give our best, we put our best foot forward for everyone out there. And one of the classic statements about dating relationships is that you put your best foot forward and you give a facade. You give what you would assume the other person wants to see. Well, family gets what they don't want to see. Isn't that a fascinating, interesting uh, perspective on it? Family gets what they don't want to see. It's like, oh, dear God. My mom sat across the table from me when I was, I think I might have been either late high school, early college, before God turned my life upside down. It was somewhere right in that time. And she's looking across the table at me, shaking her head like this. I go, what? And she goes, how have I failed? What did I do wrong? And I said, I think you did a great job. Treat parents and siblings like royalty. 
As a matter of principle, the little heroic lover always treats others as more important than himself. But out of all the people on earth, listen closely, he shows an extra special courtesy, honor, and deference and thoughtfulness towards his God-given family members. He speaks of their strengths and attempts to avoid ever needing to mention their frailties. He serves them in any way he can, prays for them always, seeks their protection, and always yearns for their health, security, and spiritual maturity. When a little heroic lover learns to be excellent in relationship with his parents and siblings, then he will, be, by matter of course, be excellent in his future marriage. You know what? That is a slam-dunk truth. Remember, my mom used to always say to me, Eric, the way you treat me is the way you're going to treat your wife. My classic response was... I'm going to treat her better than that. (laughs) And I honestly meant it. I mean, mom, no offense, but I'm not attracted to you that way. My wife, I will be attracted to. My relationship with you isn't what marriage is going to be. I'm going to, like, give my best there. I mean, you're my mom. You know, that attitude will cripple your future marriage because that's exactly right. The way you treat the number one woman in your life growing up is the way you're preparing, the pattern that you're setting for how you treat the next number one woman in your life. Of course, flip that. The way you treat the number one man in your life growing up is the way you treat the next number one man in your life. Even if they don't deserve to be treated with respect as far as the earthly system of commerce would go. In the heavenly system, you give them honor, you give them deference, you give them respect, even if they spit in your face as a response. And you will be trained for greatness in your future marriage. Greatness! Because the way you respond to those familiar with you, it's developing a behavior pattern for what we could call family. Familiar. Family. They're very closely associated. Your familiar behavior is the behavior that you are preparing to unlock and unleash when you get married. Get that familiar behavior to look like heaven now. To smell sweet Now, and I tell you what, marriage will be a slam dunk. Number 10, quick to sacrifice for the benefits of others. First sufferer that others may succeed. A little heroic lover is always willing to be the first to suffer loss. If there are four pieces of pizza and five people, the little heroic lover graciously says, I insist that you four take them. You know how hard that is for some of us guys in here? I mean, that's a piece of pizza. And I tell you what, many of us have compromised our souls over a piece of pizza. We have. I mean, it's really fascinating how much of a compromise can come from our appetite. But here's what a heroic lover learns to do. No, I insist you foretake them. Does that mean you don't want the piece? No, it has nothing to do with it. It has to do with the fact that someone has to get cut out, and it's always you. You're the lowest in that situation. You have lowliness of mind. You would treat everyone else as if they're royalty. And you give them those pieces. Okay? They belong to them as far as you're concerned. If there are two people and only one warm coat on a chilly day, then the little heroic lover graciously will remove the coat from his own shoulders and place it around the shoulders of the other. If someone is to blame, the little heroic lover will take the blame even if his fault in the matter was only minor. A little heroic lover cherishes the pains of sacrifice if they bring life to others around him. And thusly is prepared to always give of himself for the betterment of his marriage and the glory of God. You want marriage to work? You learn to do this. Always give the coat off your back. 
Always give the four pieces to other people. If you do that, God will supply you. Don't worry. You'll still get food. You'll still be warmed when you need to. There was a story that I, I grew up on. It was like this story that just set it to my soul. It was two Chinese Christians thrown in prison. They were on the slimy, frozen, you know, like uh, cold floor. And they're chained to the floor. And they were not properly dressed and winter had come. And, I mean, literally they were starting to freeze to death. One of them had a thin blanket. That's all they had between the two of them was a thin blanket. And the one that had the blanket had a thought. What if that was Jesus? What if that was Jesus? Well, Jesus gave everything for me. He gave up his life for me. If I had the privilege of giving Jesus my lone sustenance, my thin blanket, I would do it in a heartbeat. So the Chinese prisoner removed the blanket from off his shoulders, even though it was freezing cold in that room, and wrapped it around the shoulders of his brother in Christ. You know what? That's marriage right there. That's it. You see, our mindset is, I need this. It's cold. So do they, but I'm the one that has it. Mine. You know, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. By the way, that will not do you well in marriage. Do not quote that in marriage. (laughs) Number 11, purity of mind and body. A little heroic lover guards his every thought and doesn't allow any selfish fleshly thinking into his system. He is constantly aware of his actions and forsakes all selfish tendency in exchange for behavior that reflects heaven's throne room and thusly honors and edifies everyone around him. He cuts out all profane allurements and entertainments that would compromise his soul, and he uses his eyes to look only at things that would prove to be loving and honoring to his future spouse. Number 12, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I grew up with this. This is literally something my mom inculcated into us from a young age, and that is if there was any offense in the Ludi home growing up, we had to make it right before the end of the day because, as the Scripture says, let we give, lest we give the enemy or the devil a place. <gasps> well, that's enough to scare any young kid. I, my, we used to drive home after going to Kentucky Fried Chicken. And we, you know, those big barrels of Kentucky Fried Chicken. And they had like a hole in the top, which later I realized was to let out steam probably. But I, I wanted to stick my finger in that hole. And my dad once told me that there was a crab in there that would uh, grab my finger. You know, it's an amazing thing. If you can give a child a reason to stay away, they will. I had a reason why I didn't want to let the sun go down on my anger. I did not want to give the devil a place. You know what? It's not bad. It's true. Because the devil leverages unforgiveness to the harm of the saints of God. A little heroic lover doesn't have a burdened conscience, but a happy one. He keeps his accounts short and takes care of them daily. If he slips up, he makes up. If he hurts someone, then he is quick to ask forgiveness. If he makes a mistake, then he is purposeful to make it right the very same day as far as it depends on him. The rule of thumb for a little heroic lover is that before he goes to bed that night, he will have made things right with everyone he has personally wronged or slighted. He cannot and will not let the sun go down on his anger. He learns to sleep the sleep of peace because he gives the enemy absolutely no room to maneuver in his soul and will thusly be prepared to enjoy a marriage in which the residue of bitterness and resentment is unable to develop. You know, most marriages, they fall apart because 
this isn't in existence. There's a little grievance. It's never dealt with. It goes under surface, and then another grievance, and they begin to pile. You know what? Let's clear the pile, and let's start doing this right. Every day, we make things right before we even go to bed. We make things right. Our accounts are completely short and settled each day. Number 13, be thoughtful. A little heroic lover always has eyes to see the needs of those around him. And this must be constantly practiced. Every day in every situation, the little heroic lover must learn to ask God the question, is there anyone I can be of service to right now? Most people spend all their time thinking about how they can serve themselves. But not a little heroic lover. A true hero is interested in becoming a benefit to the lives of everyone around him. So he demonstrates this in a thousand and one different ways. If he sees the kitchen garbage filling up, he figures out where it needs to go and takes out the trash. If he sees that the toilet paper roll is out, he hunts down a replacement. If he notices the floor needs sweeping, the dishes need washing, or a light bulb needs changing, he doesn't wait to be asked to help. He just jumps up and gets the job done. For if he can learn to jump up and tend to these small things, then he will be prepared to jump up and tend to the needs in his marriage in the future. But it's important to note that thoughtfulness is not just for practical fix-it or clean-up things in the house. A little heroic lover also knows how to show expressions of thoughtful warmth and affection to those in his range of relationship. He loves to bring surprises that kindle notions of love and appreciation. A note written, a picture drawn, a poem left, a flower strategically laid, or a thousand other things beside. The little heroic lover that proves thoughtful in his younger years will never lose his thoughtfulness in his elder years. I don't know how many of you want to marry, as far as the women in here, a thoughtful man, but that is otherwise translated as a romantic. But actually, it's a Christian is what it is. A Christian is more than just romantic because sometimes a flower is merely a manipulative device to get out of a girl what a man wants. But this is something different. This is thoughtfulness. They're thinking about you during the day. How can I be of service? How can I give? How can I make them feel strong and loved and encouraged? It's Christ! For God so loved the world, he was thinking about us that he gave us the greatest, most amazing gift himself. And he gave up his life. It's the model. It's thoughtfulness. Number 14, follow God's lead in all matters. Our language for it is give God the pen. You could say give God the pen to write the love story. A little heroic lover is led by God and not by his own impulses, designs, or wishes. He is harnessed to God's agenda and learns to follow it no matter where it might take him. He learns to not lean on his wit and wisdom, but on God's word. He learns to not follow his own instincts, but God's spirit. He learns not to turn to his flesh or this world for counsel, but to keep his spiritual eyes trained on truth. He learns to yield to God at every turn. He learns to keep his ear attuned. He learns to be expectant for God to lead. He learns confidence in the ability of God to overcome in all seemingly impossible situations. A little heroic lover who learns to follow God's lead in small matters will be prepared to follow God in every other matter of more sizable proportion, i.e., his love story and his life calling. Number 15, develop complementary service skills. So if Leslie is listening online, she's at home with our, two, uh, our two-year-old and our one-and-a-half-year-old right now, so she's probably listening right now. She's going to be saying a hearty amen to this. Eric has skills. Don't, don't get me wrong. But 
I, I didn't get this. My dad has a philosophy about uh, home improvement skills, and it's this. That's why I get a good job, so I can pay someone else to do it. And guess what got passed along to little Eric? I, you know, Leslie's like, well, can you fix that? Uh, I can look at it. So I, like, look at it, buy some time, make it look like I'm poking around in there. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I think we might need to bring someone in for this. All right, so listen closely so you do not turn out like that. By the way, here's a little short list. Cooking, handyman skills, sewing, auto mechanics, electrical uh, skills, typing, fine carpentry. Hey, I put in typing to make myself feel better. I am a typist. All right. I do some other things. Play the piano, draw pictures, write poetry. You can do some handy things around the house. A little heroic lover uses his single years wisely and allows a thorough preparation to take place. And as an act of love, he learns practical skills that will enable him to show practical love in married life and thusly help his future family life function more effectively and efficiently. It's just obvious. But it isn't always obvious to all of us. There's some students with practical skills here. So you're starting to say, you know, I think I'm ready for marriage now. Okay, well, there's a few other things on the list we might want to consider too. Number 16, eat your vegetables. See, can't you, uh, see, uh, Hudson ate uh, all of his vegetables this week. What's your favorite vegetable now, buddy? Broccoli. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't just eat the small carrots. He eats the big boy carrots now, the, one, the carrots that mommy and daddy eat, sort of the Bugs Bunny carrots, uh, and he'll chew the whole thing. He'll eat the whole thing because he's eating his vegetables. Uh, you know, he needs to be prepared. So the sub-theme under this is take care of your body. Now, there are different waves of, you know, of how I've done with this personally because I do have a sweet tooth. There's no doubt about it, okay? And it emerges every now and then. And I can get into ruts, and then God usually awakens me out of the rut, and I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to keep this body fit. You see, I'm one of those guys that doesn't show if I eat poorly, okay? I don't get the little blub, uh, and some people are, and as a result, you know, people, they feel more uh, sensitized to the issue of how you care for your body. But I want you to realize, your body is not your own. First of all, it belongs to God. Secondly, it is given to your spouse in marriage. What kind of gift are you giving them? Isn't that an interesting question? You know, it's like all smelly and, you know, blubbery, you know, you're like handing it over. You know, and they're like, okay. You know, some of us have issues that we can't take care of, okay? They're, they're just things we were born with. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a decision in each and every day to honor your spouse with how you care for your body, as if it is a gift or a present unto them. Isn't that fascinating? I was in a coffee shop, this is a few years ago, and they had this big chunk of chocolate cake sitting there. Uh, it was like this plate, big chunk of chocolate cake. I, I am a sucker for chocolate cake. And it was the big moment. I was, I was really making an exerted effort, a focused effort in saying, no, you know what? I'm not going to just fall for the pieces of chocolate cake anymore. Of course, then suddenly the piece of chocolate cake is in front of me. And I remember they said, do you want it? You know, it's our last one. We were actually probably going to have to throw it out anyways. I'll just give it to you. Uh, see, you're right there with me. Here's what I said. Now, I haven't always said this, so I don't give an applause to this. It's just, this is what it came out this one time. I said, 
No, I've told my wife just this morning that I'm going to do this for her. So because I love my wife, I say no to that piece of chocolate. Okay. You should have seen their looks. It's like, what? But I meant it. Eat your vegetables. A little heroic lover takes care of his body as an act of love for his spouse. He fills the tank with fuel that will make his body stronger, more robust, and not just food that tastes good. He is willing to forgo the fatty foods in order to stay slimmer and stronger. He is willing to forgo the sugary satisfactions in order to maintain an outward sparkle that would please his future spouse. A little heroic lover exercises as a means of love. He demonstrates thoughtfulness to his spouse by giving them a body in marriage that is fit and strong, healthy and sound. Your love life begins now. Now, I know some of you are married, but I'm talking to those that don't yet have that love life. I want Hudson to know that he can begin to love his future wife right now. That, those 16 things are practical ways that you can love, that you can serve. It seems strange, I realize it. But we want a love life. We're like, oh, if I could just have a love life. You have one. That person is real. They care. They have feelings. And there is a way to properly love them and to do this right. And you can do it right. We as a generation can set a new pattern for this. And then we can pass it off to our children. And we can turn the tide on the debasement of our culture. You see, we're Christians. And Christians are the greatest singular influence that this world could ever behold. Because we don't just have human willpower. We have God living inside of us, enabling us to love. Because we can't love. We're selfish. But God saves us. He sets us at liberty from our selfishness, not so that we can serve ourselves. Why would we be set at liberty from selfishness? So that we can serve something else, something more important than us, Jesus and everyone Jesus loves. And he loves your future spouse. Learn to love your future spouse the way Jesus loves your future spouse. And you will be excellent in marriage. So let's finish with one more scripture. This is what we started with, but it's a good one to finish with. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem their future spouse better than themselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of your future spouse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is an attitude. This is a behavior pattern that will turn your world upside down. It'll turn your future marriage upside down. It'll turn your future family upside down. You see, if marriages are built right, did you know that families follow suit without any hindrance? You know that great families are merely the result of great marriages, which are, of course, the result of a great Christian. Two great Christians form a great marriage, which form a great family. Now, what happens if we have great families again? And we all sort of gather. You know that we have something called the, a great church? What happens when we have a great church? You know that the society around us will be changed. They'll either have to crucify us or they'll be changed by us. One of the two will happen. You see, right now the church is a neutral agent. We just bug people. That's what we're good for, getting under people's skin. Oh, there's a Christian. Well, it needs to come to the place where we either need to be crucified 
or we change the culture we live in. One of the two is how we must be because there's no other picture in the Bible for how Christianity is. So it's time to live it and not just talk it. And sometimes living it is very practical. One of the things that I've always used as an illustration is if you are given the command to make orange juice and you keep every day, you wake up and you get your big canister of Kool-Aid and you have your pitcher here. This pitcher is supposed to be filled with orange juice. So you scoop out your, you know, your uh, Kool-Aid mix, pour in some water, stir it up, and then pray over the pitcher. God, could you change my Kool-Aid into oranges? And he says, you see those oranges over there? Peel them, squeeze them. You follow my pattern, and the result is oranges. I'll help you find the oranges, I'll help you peel them, I'll help you squeeze them. He'll do the work. We must obey. We don't just pray over our flesh the way Abraham prayed over Ishmael. Oh God, may Ishmael stand before me. God cannot have a produce of self-effort stand before his throne and be, a, and be pleasing to his sight. No, remove Ishmael. Only Isaac, the son of promise, the son of the supernatural productivity of obedience under God. It's the productivity of faith. That's what stands before God. And so for some of us, we want the orange juice. We want it to turn out well. If I asked you, the single people in here, how many of you want to have a great marriage in the future? It's like, of course. And then some of you say, well, I don't know if I want to be married. However, you want a great marriage if you're going to be married? Of course we would. None of us wants to purposely sabotage our future, do we? But we do it all the time. How about we remove the sabotaging elements of our life that are actually destroying our future and we begin to cultivate behavior patterns which set the stage for success. The enemy has marked Christian marriage as one of his number one attack points. If he can bring down Christian marriage, he wins because in doing it, he brings down Christian family. In doing that, he brings down Christian churches. In doing that, he solves the riddle of this world. There is no threat to his rule and reign. He's after Christian marriages. You go after Christian marriage as well. And you allow it to be cultivated properly within us as the saints of God. Let's pray. Father, this is unto you for your glory, honor, and praise. Only you can build a world-changing, heaven-born marriage. And so we submit ourselves to you. And we say, please do this. Please turn us outward. Please solve the riddle of our selfishness. Bring us to the cross. And let that old man be crucified that we may be raised unto newness of life in Christ Jesus, that we may be given everything that is needed for life and godliness so that we can function as we ought to function. For your glory, honor, and praise, we ask it. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please, feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. 
For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.